Father, we have your spirit, your word, and your local church. We have all we need to be complete in thee. Please bring all three together beautifully during this exposition. Lord, we come to the table hungry. We need the meat of your word. We need you to spread a banquet before us and let us feast. We come to the table hungry and we come to the table dependent. Dependent solely on your spirit to make the book live. It's not as simple as picking up the spiritual food with our hands and moving it to our mouths. Your spirit must gather the food and bring it to the lips of the soul. If we are fed today, it's not due to our great listening skills or the giftings of the preacher. If we are fed, it will be by your spirit. We come to the table hungry. We come to the table dependent. And many of us come to the table hurting. So help deep call out to deep. May the deepness of your word mend the deep wounds of our souls. Apply the gospel balm. We come to the table hungry. We come to the table dependent. Many of us come to the table hurting. But none of us come to the table alone. You've given us a marvelous local church. So as we feast collectively... Speak collectively. There are some among us who do not yet have a seat at the table. They are without Christ and without redemption. Use this time to draw them to yourself. To make them new creatures. To bring them to repentance and faith. Redeem them right in the middle of this exposition. And do it for your glory alone. Father, we have a tendency... We have a tendency to be blind to our own sin. Please use the text to make us see. We have a tendency to be downcast. To live as if your son has not resurrected from the dead. Use this text to fill us with hope. This is a big ask from a chapter in the Old Testament. This is a big ask, but not to you. You delight in doing everything we have just asked. You've done it for us in the past. Do it again, Lord. This is our corporate plea. Amen. If you're new at FFC, we like to walk through books of the Bible. Sometimes crawl through them. We've been crawling through 2 Samuel. It's been a very rewarding book for us because it has revealed our God. We will speed up as we near the end. After today, we only have five Sundays left in the book. The, the graphic you see reminds us of where we have been in our study. Chapter 1, the king is dead. That's where Israel's king Saul died. A civil war followed in chapter 2. Chapter 3, the war years. 4, the assassins. Chapter 5 is pivotal. A new king, a new capital. David is finally crowned and he names Jerusalem as the new capital. That's where he will build his white house. God's king on God's throne. Six, the ark is back. Seven, the Davidic covenant. I'm sending a Messiah through your reign. Eight, 
God's kingdom expanding. Nine, Mephibosheth. Ten, the king's kindness. Everything is ascending until chapter 11. That's the downfall of David. The David and Bathsheba story. The fallout from that sin plays out in the next few chapters. 12, David and Nathan. 13, Amnon and Tamar. You remember chapter 13? David's son Amnon rapes David's daughter Tamar. Absalom, David's other son, defends her honor and kills his half-brother. Absalom runs for his life in a self-imposed banishment. He's away from his father for three years. Away from his father, King David, for three years until chapter 14. Absalom, the banished one, restored. In 15, Absalom conspires to overtake his dad's throne. He deploys a coup and, and it's successful. He requires David to leave the White House and Jerusalem and declare it an open city. On the way out, he meets Ziba and Shammai, one who tried to deceive him and one who tried to black his eye. It was while on the run, David heard about Ahithophel, his friend who betrayed him and went with the coup, went with Absalom. David also ran into Hushai, his loyal companion and advisor. Hushai wanted to be on the run with David. But David says, you'll do me better if you pretend to be an advisor for Absalom and work for me from the inside. Hushai agreed and weaseled his way into the new administration. He's now a double agent. Which leads us to today. Chapter 17. Ahithophel's downfall. That's the context for today's exposition. Absalom entered Jerusalem and he's now on the throne. David is on the run and his crown is falling. His kingdom is crumbling. And you say, Kyle, what's the big deal about any of this? Who cares who was sitting on a small Middle Eastern throne 3,000 years ago? Well, God's plan is that David be on the throne. The one who is running. His plan is to send a Messiah through the reign of David. This Messiah will come and always point back, reference back to David's kingdom. So it's a big deal. If David isn't on the throne, God's plan for the ages crumbles. If David isn't on the throne, your salvation never happens. I want you to see from the jump the surety and shakiness of God's plan. It seems unstable at times, like it could all crumble. But this chapter, along with all these Old Testament narratives, teach that God's plan is sure. It's the surety and shakiness of God's kingdom put on display. This has been God's way the whole time. When Jesus Christ was on earth, the night he was betrayed, all the yelling and the mocking and the beating of God's king, it looked very shaky. Until three days later, when Jesus came up out of the grave and then suddenly... It looked very sure. The surety and shakiness of God's plan. Absalom is on the throne. He is surrounded by two advisors, Ahithophel and Hushai. The last verse of chapter 16 tells us all we need to know about Ahithophel. It reads, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave, listen to this, was as if one consulted the word of God. 
so was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. Ahithophel's advice is gospel. It's like God was giving it. Now, that advice, that counsel, is against God's king. So you have perfect military strategy, perfect brilliance against God's ultimate plan. It seems like God's unfolding drama of redemption is a bit shaky here until you realize that God has planted a mole in enemy camp. Hushai is a double agent. Illustrated on the graphic here by the stash. <laughs> Matthew creates these images for me and I think this is some of his best work. You see the providential working of God to install Hushai into Absalom's circle of advisors. This made Absalom vulnerable to conflicting advice. God lays the groundwork for a fateful clash of counselors. Now that's the context. You need that before we get into the text. There's a lot happening in this chapter. You have Yahweh followers, God followers, the good guys, just blatantly lying. How do we explain that? How do we reckon the good guys doing bad actions? You have a Christian man and a Christian woman just bold-faced lying. What do we do with that? We will deal with it. We have a suicide in the text. There are four suicides in the Bible. One is here. For those of you who have been so discouraged and so down that you've considered suicide, I think there's help in the text for you. Then you have, worst of all, some PKs. Some pastor's kids causing trouble in the text. No surprise there. Pastor's kids being chased and hiding in a well. Will they make it? Will they get caught? Um, is it okay to lie under certain circumstances? We're going to deal with all of that. Just a lot of random stuff in the text, random events that God will use to make us mature in Christ. Here's the outline. A war council, verses 1 through 14. A narrow escape, 15 through 22. A wilderness table, 23 through 29. A war council, a narrow escape, a wilderness table. The first section is by far the longest, so don't get worried when I stay in that one for quite a while. We'll begin with a war council. Powerful Israeli military men around the table, and they are hearing ideas from generals, advisors, military counselors on what to do next. Verse 1. Moreover, Ahithophel said to Absalom, let me choose 12,000 men and I will arise and pursue David tonight. I will come upon him while he is weary and discouraged and throw him into a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee. I will strike down only the king. And I will bring all the people back to you as a, as a bride comes, to her comes home to her husband. You seek the life of only one man and all the people will be at peace. Verse 4, and the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now, Ahithophel wants to take 12,000 men, 1,000 from each tribe of Israel, so it will appear all tribes are united against David. And he wants to move out tonight, not in the morning, tonight. His war strategy is to strike while the iron is hot. 
David left Jerusalem in a hurry, and he's dead dog tired. He's weak physically and emotionally. His team is disorganized, fatigued, and hungry from their unexpected escape. They are vulnerable. David's never been this vulnerable before, and he will never be again. Ahithophel will have 20 times the soldiers. He will overwhelm David with numbers. He has the element of surprise on his side. And he has a narrow objective. Kill one man. His battle plan is careful, calculated, and concise. He will be in and out and back by sunrise. He doesn't see any need in fighting all of David's 600 men. He wants to deploy a surgical strike and kill David only. Once David's dead, his men will scatter like roaches when the lights turn on. When it all clears, they will come back and be loyal to King Absalom. Ahithophel laid out his military strategy and then he left the room. Look at the faces of all the people around the war council table. They love his idea. It is succinct, clear, understandable. It's an unbeatable strategy. How could they not love it? It's like it came from God. It would have received top praise from any of today's military strategists. Church, let's do something a little different. Let's do a little Q&A with Ahithophel. A little question and answer time. Let's try to get inside of his mind by asking questions. Ahithophel, who are you? And what do you do? I, um, I advise kings on war strategies. When they are cloudy and they need a situation to clear up, that's where I come in. I'm never wrong. In fact, there's a saying going around about my work, consulting with Ahithophel is like consulting with the word of God. My counsel is esteemed highly as if God himself spoke it. I recently changed employers. I work for Absalom now. King Absalom. He's young, athletic, quite a politician if I may say so myself. And he's got the people wrapped around his finger. He just successfully deployed a coup. He took over the throne and sent the previous king packing. He's out there in the wilderness. I hope he dies out there. In fact, I hope to kill him out there. I hate David. With the fire of a thousand flames, I hate that man. Ahithophel, why do you hate David so much? What's your motive in all this? Why turn on him after years of friendship? I used to work for him for decades. I advised him on matters of war. Then one day, my granddaughter's husband died in battle. His name was Uriah. He died on the front lines performing a a really bad tactical move, which is surprising because he never made mistakes on the battlefield. At the funeral, I saw King David speak to my granddaughter Bathsheba. He gave his condolences, but... They looked at one another in an unusual way. About a week later, he calls for her and they get married. The king already has a house full of wives. About eight months later, she gave birth to a baby boy. Eight months. The timeline doesn't match up. 
I had heard the palace whispers that the king had taken my granddaughter Bathsheba while her husband was away in battle. He impregnated her, then sent Uriah on a death mission to cover it up. Oh, Ahithophel, you must be so proud to have your granddaughter marry the king. What a good king to keep her from being a destitute widow, marrying the wife of a fallen hero. That king is a good man. Psh, good man. How about an adulterous man? How about a murderer? Some people call me a traitor to the crown. David betrayed me long before I betrayed him. All I can think about even now is that man dying. He knew Bathsheba was my granddaughter. She's young enough to be his daughter. I used to take her to the palace and let her walk around so she could see where Grandpa worked. The first counsel I gave when I switched sides was for Absalom, excuse me, King Absalom, to take David's concubines and sleep with them on the roof. The very same roof where he seduced my granddaughter Bathsheba. The prophet Nathan told David that what he did in the dark, a new king would do in the light. I'm glad I helped to fulfill that prophecy. I'm just stepping out of the war council going on. King Absalom, he wanted my, my godlike advice on how to pursue and kill David. I'm a bit of a secret weapon, and David knows it. He's got to be panicking. I can't wait to, to lead the troops myself, track down David, and, and right before I kill him, look him in his eyes and say, you never deserve to be God's king. And any king who messes with my family will pay the price. Well, church, after interviewing Ahithophel, we see he's a cocky man. He's an embittered man. And back to the story, verse 5. Then Absalom said, call Hushai the archite also, and let us hear what he has to say. And when Hushai came to Absalom, Absalom said to him, thus has Ahithophel spoken. Shall we do as he says? If not, you speak. Now, beloved, you may be wondering with me why Absalom is asking Hushai's opinion if everyone on the war council loves Ahithophel's plan. I can't explain that. It makes no sense. Everyone around the table says, what a great plan. That's exactly what we need to do. Thumbs up. Let's implement it tonight. Then Absalom says, I agree. Let's ask Hushai what he thinks. Verse 7. Then Hushai said to Absalom, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Hushai said, you know, what your father and his, you know that your father and his men are mighty men. And that they are enraged like a bear robbed of her cubs in the field. Besides, your father is expert in war. He will not spend the night with the people. Behold, even now he has hidden himself in one of the pits or in some other place. And as soon as some of the people fall at the first attack, whoever hears it will say, there has been a slaughter among the people who follow Absalom. Then even the valiant men, whose heart is like the heart of a lion, will utterly melt with fear. For all Israel knows that your father is a mighty man and that those who are with him are valiant men. This is interesting. Hushai says, yeah, Ahithophel's counsel is always right, always, except this time. He's dead wrong on this issue. 
Don't think of David and his men as weary and discouraged, able to be picked off in a moment. Think of them as a mama bear, robbed of her cubs. Think of him as enraged. Like a wild animal, he is more dangerous when cornered. He will be harder to defeat now than later. Wait a day, wait a week, maybe a month. The audacity to say that Ahithophel's plan was not very thorough, that there are things that he has not taken into account. Hushai fed Absalom fear. He kept talking about David as an experienced fighter who would not be caught napping. Guerrilla warfare is his presence and you would be playing into his hands. He evokes images of David while he was on the run from Saul. Uh, Hushai touted David's previous experience. See what he's doing? He's planting seeds of doubt in Ahithophel's tactically sound plan. He claims David's battlefield technique essentially eliminates the possibility of being caught off guard, which is nonsense, of course. Hushai pitched, you attack David now, and he will kill some of your men. They will panic and the army will melt. You will lose control of this coup. Hushai fed him fear. And then he fed him flattery. Verse 11. But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you. From Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude. And that you go to battle in person. So we shall come upon him in some place where he is to be found and we shall light upon him as the dew falls on the ground and of him and all the men with him, not one will be left. You don't need to hit the fell leading the troops. You need to lead the troops. He's appealing to the young man's vanity, painting pictures of Absalom leading a victorious army, all people rallying around him. It's a verbal trap. He's, he's inflating his ego. King Absalom is a, is a lot of things, but he's no warrior. Will he be blinded by his own egotism? You've got to give it to Hushai. He's masterful in argumentation. He's not just a man with a great stash. He has great argumentative skills. The first plate he fed Absalom was fear. The second plate was flattery. The final plate is rhetoric. He employed vivid descriptions, striking metaphors. David like a bear robbed of her cubs. Even saying Israel's lion-hearted men would run away when they see David in the wilderness. You, you know what he's doing? He's evoking the legend of David. Bears and lions stirring up images of David's youth. He's acting like he's the David of old. When he's just old David. Yeah, he's, he's on the run, but he's not running very fast. He's in his 70s. Hushai spins his web of conjectures, all of which are flimsy. He contests Ahithophel's military strategy isn't comprehensive enough. It's too small-minded in its scope. He argues for total annihilation. When the smoke clears, not a single survivor walks away. Even in verse 13, contesting that if King David escapes and retreats into some city, that Absalom should take ropes and attach them to grappling hooks and then pull the city walls down. Not a wall left standing. The way Hushai eloquently belittles Ahithophel's war strategy and then gives his own, he debunks sage counsel. 
What is his angle? He's allowing David precious time to escape. Waiting means Absalom loses the element of surprise. He's infiltrated the ranks to do just this. Feed Absalom bad advice. Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is a powerful verse. A hand turned Absalom's heart without him being aware. The hidden hand of God is working out his purposes. And it's not just Absalom, but all the men sitting at the war council table. Everyone flipped. God is working behind the scenes, in the scenes, beyond the scenes, through the scenes. Hushai, of course, wanted to buy time so David could get away. God's sovereignty is often happening through decisions made so naturally, so freely, so humanly. But God is behind it all. Which leads us to this truth. God reigns sovereign over your life. God reigns sovereign over your life. Church, trust his sovereign activity. He lays out plans for kings and kingdoms, presidents and nations. Don't go on many tirades talking like, well, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. We are sitting on the couch watching the demise of Western civilization. Why are you so bent out of shape? Running around fearful. God can get into any war council he desires. He can flip a strategy in a moment. Well, I'm stressed out over evil, Kyle. Why? Why are you stressed about things that God has ordained to defeat? Here's some pushback on God's sovereignty that is common. Well, yes, Kyle, I, I know God was sovereign over these Old Testament events. But that was just so that he could line up the very moment to get Jesus into the world. Beloved, it's not like God's plans stopped at the birth and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he carefully moved pieces around up until that moment. And then now he just sort of stands back and lets things happen today totally outside of his control. That's not happening. God is always sovereign. And what I mean by that is God is always God. Well, well, Kyle, how can we ever be assured that the plan of God will prevail? Because it's God's plan. God's sovereignty doesn't stop with the life of David. It extends to your life. And that's what this text reveals to you. God is working in your life behind the scenes, in the scenes, beyond the scenes, and through the scenes. Now, here, here's another truth from the text. God can defeat schemings against his people. God can defeat schemings against his people. You don't understand. You, you don't know what they're saying about me. They're planning my demise. Right now, they're gossiping about me. Beloved, God can defeat the schemings against his people. 
Now, before we leave the, the war council and move on to the narrow escape, I want to give you this gold nugget in the text. God determined to discredit the council of Ahithophel. How did he do that? He, he didn't make the council foolish. He made it appear foolish. The text says it was still very good counsel, but Absalom didn't see it as very good. The Lord had ordained to defeat Ahithophel's counsel by causing Absalom to seek secondary advice and to view that bad advice as good. Now let's bridge to the narrow escape. Hushai didn't know verse 14 happened. That verse is the writer's aside to the reader. Hushai thinks the war council could and should take Ahithophel's advice and pursue David tonight. So he begins an underground communication network to tell David to flee. He sneaks off and passes an underground message. He tells the other two moles in Absalom's kingdom, the priest, Zadok and Abiathar, verse 16. Now therefore, send quickly and tell David, do not stay tonight at the fords of the wilderness, but by all means pass over, lest the king, David, and all the people who are with him be swallowed up. In, in other words, David, you can't camp out. It's too dangerous. You must keep going, keep fleeing, wade across the river tonight. Verse 17. Now Jonathan and Ahimeaz were waiting at Enrogel. Now the, these were the two sons of the priest Abiathar. A female servant was to go and tell them, and they were to go and tell King David, for they were not to be seen entering the city. Hushai gave the message to the priest. They gave it to the young lady who would give it to the priest's son. It, sons. It's a communication chain. Verse 18. But a young man saw them and told Absalom. So both of them went away quickly and came to the house of a man at Bahurim who had a well in his courtyard and they went down into it. These two PKs, priest kids, pastor's kids, are in trouble. Despite their stealth, They've been outed as messengers for the opposing army. Their cover had been blown. They run to the house of a known David sympathizer. He's moderately wealthy. He has a well in his backyard. He allowed the two PKs to hide in it. And his wife, verse 19, spread a covering over the well's mouth and scattered grain on it and nothing was known of it. She made it, she made it look like the well was a place where you dried grain in the sun. She covered and camouflaged it with the boys inside. She, 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 puts over, she puts a board over top of the well, pulls chairs around. It looks like a table in the backyard. Now, what this wife doesn't notice is that across the street, there's a dark sedan with tinted windows. Someone snitched that her house was the hideout. And we see the scene unfold. They approach the house, knock on the door. She opens the door. She's wearing an apron, acting like she's baking. They demand to know where the traitors are. She acts flabbergasted. Well, I have no idea. I would never allow them to hide out in my house. You know, come to think of it, I did see two teen boys running that way across the brook. The men in dark suits and sunglasses bought the lie and went searching for them. She lied to them. She sent them on a wild goose chase. Once they were gone, the wife started moving the salt and pepper shakers and the plates. She moved the board covering the top of the well. The two PKs climb out and run to David and tell him the secret message from Hushai. 
How does David respond? Verse 22. Then David arose and all the people who were with him and they crossed the Jordan. By daybreak, not one was left who had not crossed the Jordan. Now, fleeing Jerusalem, fleeing the capital, I'm sure everyone in David's entourage would have relished in a good night's sleep. But instead, they make the dangerous trek through the rushing water of the Jordan in almost total darkness. Was it a needless journey? Maybe. Absalom didn't end up taking Ahithophel's advice and going that night. He will wait another day, maybe a few days, and take all of Israel himself. For the two PKs, it's a narrow escape. Thanks to the lies of a housewife. Which leaves us with the whopper of a moral conundrum. There's a lot of deception going on in this chapter. Hushai lying about the proper war movements to protect David. And this woman outright blatant lying to protect spies. No one is wearing white hats in this story. And it brings up an interesting question. Is it a sin to lie if you're protecting someone's safety? This story is reminiscent of Rahab hiding two spies in the book of Joshua. The unnamed lady in our text, this housewife, is another Rahab. Many similarities between the two accounts. To deceive someone is sin. But is it always a sin? Is it ever right to lie? Well, what about Cory Ten Boom, who during the Nazi occupation of Holland hid Jews in her home and lied to police when they came to the door asking if Jews were in the home? She lied to protect them from the concentration camps and eventual death. Some others in her day actually refused to lie and answered the police saying, yes, they are in the house. And the hiding Jews were then carried off in chains. These people refuse to practice falsehood under any circumstances because to sin is a lie. I think Corey's sister was one. She said if her truth-telling resulted in the arrest of an innocent person, then God would deliver that person through another means. That, that's a Corey Ten Boom example, but let's think about some others. What about undercover FBI agents? Pretending to be someone they are not. Can a Christian do that? Thomas Aquinas, who was maybe the greatest theologian in the Middle Ages, taught that there were three types of lies. Officious lies, jocus lies, and mischievous lies. When confronted with the horns of this ethical dilemma, he invented categories. Officious lies are lies of necessity. That's what the Hebrew midwives did to protect the babies, uh, along with Corey Ten Boom, the man and woman in our passage. Now, Augustine, whose head is in my office, not not his literal head, it's it's a bust. Augustine chopped this argument down and said there is no such thing as officious lies. Derek Thompson said that for a thousand years the church went with Augustine and they believe there is never a case when a lie of necessity is called for. Officious lies, the the belief, the teaching, teaches that the letter and the spirit of the law are not violated when deception is used to save a life. Uh, Jokus lies are lies told in jest. You might think of this as joking Some of you ask me, how much can you bench press? 
800 pounds <laughs> on a bad day. In a pickup basketball game, is it, sin to, is it a sin to juke left but then go right? No. It's just jokist lies. Now, mischievous lies are lies told to harm people or to save face. This is how most of us think, view lies. Uh, let, let me summarize this. I, I do think it's dangerous to get into what I call situational ethics. Your ethic changes according to the situation. However, I think this is clear. This is not armchair ethics. This is a matter of life and death. I don't think Hushai or the unnamed lady in our text sin with their lies. Now let me prove that from the Rahab story. Rahab, like the woman in our text, lied to protect two spies. The book of Hebrews commends Rahab for telling a lie to protect the spies. Hebrews commends her faith. Her deception was a good act that was the result of her faith. A good work, it seems. Deception sprang from her faith. It seems deception, deception sprang from this unnamed woman's faith in our text as well. Other categories? Killing is wrong. To take a life is wrong. Except in protecting other lives. Uh, you're to keep the Sabbath. Except when the ox has fallen into the ditch and then it's okay to break it. You are to, you are to obey your parents but not when your parents tell you to do something that is contrary to what God has plainly said. A war council, a narrow escape, now a weird, wilderness table. Let's get back to Ahithophel. We left him in verse 4. He's been waiting this entire time to hear the decision from the war council. It's important for you to understand that Ahithophel doesn't know as much as the reader knows. You are given more details than he is let in on. You're reading the text, he's living the text. You can be in multiple places at once. The narrator grants you that privilege, but Ahithophel can only be in one place at a time. There are other things going on in other locations that he's not aware of, like the whole narrow escape scene that we just witnessed. Look at verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. Ahithophel is unable to fathom why his advice was not followed. Ahithophel's plan was clearly superior. But as the war council convenes and they all walk past him, he knows they didn't go with his counsel. And he thinks to himself and no doubt vocalized, it's over. It's over before it starts. David would have been dead tonight following my advice. Now he will just reorganize. He will rest, recuperate, enlist foreign mercenaries, build his army, develop a tactically flawless battle plan. The rebellion can only fail now. We've lost the strategic advantage. He's right. Absalom's coup will most certainly fail. David will come back to Jerusalem. And when he does, there's no place for Ahithophel in his cabinet. He'll be executed as a traitor. 
He sets his affairs in order, writes his last will and testament, makes arrangements for the distribution of his property. He writes down that he wants to be buried in his father's tomb. He will either die by the hands of David or die by his own hands. He ties the rope into a noose, slips it around his neck, kicks the chair beneath him away. He chooses to die by his own hands. Suicide. In this, there is instruction for us. Ahithophel's end is a warning to anyone who stands in opposition to God's king. On the tombstone it reads, I am Ahithophel. I lifted my hand against the Lord's anointed and it brought me ruin. You can't oppose God's king and expect no consequences. Friends, you don't have to live in opposition to God's king and experience ruin. You can submit to God's king and experience grace. Submit to Christ, the better David. One day Jesus will experience something David never did. He's coming to be the unopposed king. He's unopposed because he'll put down all those who oppose him, including you. You don't have to be like Ahithophel. You can repent instead of suicide. Ahithophel defected. He defected because he found it hard to believe that God would build his kingdom through somebody like David, an adulterer, a murderer. Friend, my plea to you is to make sure you deal with all areas that may tempt you to defection. Here's what Ahithophel misunderstood. God wasn't going to redeem his elect with a sinful king. He was going to do it with a sinless king. Salvation wasn't in David. It was through David. Because Ahithophel rejected David, Ahithophel rejected David and Bathsheba's son, Solomon. Solomon was the great-great-grandson of Ahithophel. You know who the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of Ahithophel was? Jesus Christ. Because Ahithophel rejected David, he rejected great David's greater son, Jesus Christ. Two men hanging for two different reasons. Ahithophel hung for his own sins. Jesus hung for sins not his own. Ahithophel wasn't allowed to kill David because God was protecting that line. Actually, weirdly, protecting Ahithophel's great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Jesus Christ. Ahithophel had his house in order, but not his soul. Let's do a little biblical theology. Ahithophel lives in the Old Testament. Ahithophel 2.0 lives in the New Testament. Ahithophel lives in the Old Testament. Ahithophel 2.0 lives in the New Testament. Ahithophel is not the only man to have committed suicide after conspiring against God's chosen king. There's another. His name? Judas Iscariot. Ahithophel and Judas both died by suicide. 
after betraying God's king. Both hung themselves as the means of suicide. Both were defectors who used to walk with God's king. They both became their own executioner. But that will not save them from the final execution. They did not die by the king's hand on earth, but they will forever die by the king's hand in hell. Ahithophel fulfilled Nathan's words about David's betrayal. Judas fulfilled Jeremiah's words about Jesus' betrayal. So many similarities. These are identical accounts besides one difference. Ahithophel wanted to destroy God's chosen king at night. God would not allow it to happen. 1,000 years later, Judas wanted to destroy God's chosen king at night. And God did allow it to happen. In our text, God's king was saved. In the New Testament, God's king was not. Why? That was the predetermined means by which God would redeem sinners to himself. Before we leave this verse, I'd like to talk about suicide and the gospel. For those so discouraged, you've considered suicide. Listen up. It, it could be your own sins and failures that make you think of it. It could be other sins against you that make you think of it. It could be just the stress of life that makes you think about it. But hear me, friend. Satan says, hang yourself. Jesus says, I was hung for you. You don't have to kill yourself. God killed his son so that you might be saved. David was a king who would hang those who opposed him. Jesus was a king who was hung for those who opposed him. A war council, a narrow escape, a wilderness table. This chapter ends with David and his army making it to a safe place in the wilderness and Absalom and his men preparing the forces for war. David will rest in Mahanaim and organize his troops for battle. While there, three old guys come to David's aid with food. Now David's an old guy himself. So this is like a senior citizen luncheon. All these guys sitting around eating a sausage biscuit and holding their AARP cards. <laughs> Verse 28. They brought beds, basins, and earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, parched grain, beans, and lentils, honey, and curds, and sheep, and cheese from the herd for David and all the people with him to eat. For they said, the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. These three older men provided an impressive table of food for this government in exile. Tents, tables, cooking pots, pans, bowls, wheat, barley, flour, roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey, hard cheese and curd cheese from the flocks and herds. I wonder if this is when David wrote Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. 
There is a table of beans and lentil soup before him. We see here God providing for those who follow the king. David feasts while his conspirator hangs. The king is safe at his table. Ahithophel is dead hanging from his ceiling. Which leads to our final truth. This is not the first time or the last time God has spread a table in the wilderness. This is not the first time or the last time God has spread a table in the wilderness. Each time he does this in the scripture, it points to the fact that God will sustain his people until he brings them home. Beloved, God will sustain you until he brings you home. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for spreading a table for David in his wilderness. And thank you for spreading a table for these dear people in their wilderness. In a world of rebellion against God's king, help us to remain faithful to him. For those among us, for those whose bodies are giving out on them, Help them to see Jesus who bled out for them. For those whose spouses stepped out on them. Help them to see Jesus who never steps out on his bride. Thank you for showing us Christ from this text. He sustained us in this hour. Grace upon grace. And thank you for the privilege to herald the word. It's a glorious calling. Amen. Church, let's stand together.